I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff. This is the podcast that's all about the dolls. They were the groupies, the wives, the girlfriends, and the muses who played such a huge role in rock and roll history by simply being themselves. They were sweet, sexy, brave, and powerful. They went after what and who they wanted, and they made no apology. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hey, Shanti. So on this week's episode of the podcast, we had the pleasure of interview of interviewing Pleasant Gaiman, and she is friggin' awesome. Absolutely. Known as the Princess of Hollywood, this goddess, she does it all. She's a writer, actress, musician, tarot reader. Some may already know her as Princess Farhana, belly dancer extraordinaire. She's also the source of one of our favorite quotes. Being a groupie is like worshiping at the church of rock and roll, and you're the high priestess. Hallelujah. Enjoy the episode. How are you? We're great. We're so excited to have you on. We've been talking about this for a while. We're just, we're just so excited. I'm so excited, too. I was just looking through your um, Instagram at all the awesome photos. Everyone should follow it. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Our Muse and Stuff podcast Instagram. Yes. It's It's been a lot of fun and it's been so fantastic almost building this shrine to these women who we are absolutely groupies, gaga groupies over because 
you paved the way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that you know that the, the, all of the girls paved the way before me too. You know, I was in a later bunch that was already going on when I was a little kid, and I I just love seeing all those old pictures. And I'm so fortunate to have been able to become friends with people that, you know, I was staring at their pictures in hard copy magazines when I was like, you know, 10 to 15 years old. And, you know, now as an adult, I've been friends with lots of them for ages and it's unbelievable to me. So I'm a groupie for groupies as well as a groupie for rock stars. Exactly. That's exactly what we are as well. So we want to tell your story right now. Um, how about we begin with your childhood? Uh, was music a big thing in your household? Yeah, it was, music was a huge thing in my household because um, my father, Richard Gaiman, and my uncle, Nat Hentoff, um, both of whom are now passed on, um, they were both huge influential music writers when I was a tiny little girl. And uh you know, like my earliest memories are having like famous jazz musicians like detoxing on our couch and <laughs> and listening to like the Beatles record and Hermits Hermits and stuff when they first came out because my my father had you know the review copies. Mm-hmm. Were you a Stones so, girl or a Beatles girl? Um, I was a Stones girl when I got a little bit older, you know, but when I when I when I first heard the Beatles, I was like four. I mean, it was like right when Meet the Beatles came out. So, you know, I, I didn't even know that the Rolling Stones existed. I just knew that, like, if I got a tennis racket, I could pretend I was the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> oh, that's so true. I'm not um yeah I was I was I was totally a Stones girl although I love the Beatles too I'm not like some people you know that won't you know that just won't listen to either but um definitely a Stones girl because they were more bad absolutely it was so bad (laughs) they were way sexier absolutely that's true. Speaking of sexy, we have um, the picture of you on our screen that's just sitting with these candles beside you, and you're in this black turtleneck with these. Yeah, they're like 1930s. Oh, <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, I got sidetracked. Just speaking of sexy, hello, pleasant. <laughs> hello, it's four ninety nine a minute to talk to pleasant Raymond. <laughs> blushing <laughs> oh man so where did you grow up I, I when I was really small I lived in upstate New York on a farm and um then by the time I was nine I was living in Connecticut and my mom was teaching at Wesleyan University and my first major concert and also the first time I drank wine and smoked pot <laughs> was um the Grateful Dead, and this was when I was nine, so I guess it was it was sixty eight or sixty nine. I'm not sure. You smoked pot when you were nine years old. 
Yeah, because I grew up in the 60s. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I don't smoke it now. And I used to joke, like, you know, that I would only smoke it if I was on three or four other substances. But the first time I had it, I was nine. And it was also the first time I drank red wine and had my face painted. And also the Merry Pranksters were there. Oh, my God. And I remember vividly, because imagine being, like, nine years old and going to, like, a big open-air Grateful Dead concert with your babysitter. (laughs) (laughs) And, which was totally normal in those days, or at least, you know, on a college campus, it was normal. I mean, nowadays, you're, you know, your kids would get taken away from you if, if stuff like that happened. But, um, in the 60s, it was normal, you know, and there, there was like a, the Merry Pranksters were there and someone was doing like a headstand with their legs in lotus position on the roof of the bus for like four hours and there was people dressed like the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz and wearing like Victorian clothes, doing like a 300 person ring around the rosy circle around. I mean, it was it was insanity. Oh, my God. That was my introduction to like real life. That rock is concert. like the craziest. Like, no wonder you fell in love with rock and roll. And yeah, <laughs> that's like magical. And that's like the most kick ass babysitter ever. I never yeah. had a babysitter like that. <laughs> no, my babysitters were amazing. I mean, they had like, um, I'm still friends with a couple of them, actually, like in real life and on Facebook, we're friends. They were boys because Wesleyan was a, a boys school. But um, they were like older brothers, you know, they were just a few years older than me and my brothers and sisters. And they were all like, they introduced me to like James Brown and like Liar Liar by the Castaways and the Supremes. One of them was a drag queen and he used to like, come down the steps wrapped in like sheets off our beds, like lip syncing to baby love. I mean, it was, <laughs> I owe my whole lifestyle pretty much to those babysitters. One of them gave me Andy Warhol's interview when I was, um, when I was like, I think I was like 11. This That's... is, this is um Gary Morris. He, he runs a film website called bright lights, but, um, you know, when he was like 17 or 18, like he gave me, I think he was probably like 18. He gave me Andy Warhol's interview and then he painted my toenails blue sparkles. That's <laughs> amazing. The only thing like my dude babysitter ever did for me was like boil me hot dogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. What would Freud say about that? <laughs> Jeez. Although my older cousin, who was kind of like a babysitter, she brought us from Sudbury to Toronto. So I'm from a small town outside of Sudbury. That's northern Ontario. It's about a five-hour drive to Toronto, the city that we're in now. Maybe a little bit longer. Isn't Sudbury like Stompin' Tom Connors? That's it. (laughs) Sudbury Saturday night, baby. why I know this. No. The the girls are to bingo yeah, and the boys are getting stinko. Yeah. That that is Sudbury. That's where I am from. Oh my god. Look at me now, pleasant. <laughs> I made it. Made it to the big city. But my my cousin took us to a concert when I was in high school um to go see the Foo Fighters and my morning jacket opened for them. Amazing. And my morning jacket are yeah, huge now, and, and that was great, but um, nothing nothing like flying was that monkeys. Your first concert? Was that your first concert? Mm, my first concert, um, actually, I think was Backstreet Boys. We <laughs> took a shot. We took a bus from 
I was 11. We took a bus from Sudbury to Toronto with a bunch of the other BSB girls. We all had headbands. One headband said Brian and one headband said Nick because we didn't like I didn't get to grow up and have the Beatles and the Stones and them. You know, I got I got the boy bands and I fell hard for them. So my first concert was I was in the movie with Kevin from the Backstreet Boys not that long ago. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? I was in a movie with Kevin from the Backstreet Boys not that long ago. Oh, Kevin, what's he like? He was awesome. I thought he might be like an idiot because of like, you know, boy bands. <laughs> he was so amazing. I loved him. He, he, was, he was incredible. And he was a great actor too, I got to say. Oh, that's awesome. And now I totally... Can you hear me? It sounds... I can hear you. You just cut out a little hey, bit my there. Yeah, my sound's cutting out a little bit, but now it's back. Yeah, You're there good. you go. You're good. Yeah. Okay, Kevin BSB there. I have a reason okay. now to, to tag him. Yeah. I can I get to tag I get right. to tag Backstreet Boys. Now? Yeah. Yeah, we got you. We got you. Okay. So Okay, good, good. At what point did you move to LA? Um, I moved here when I was fifteen and like a few days later I turned sixteen and um I don't know if you guys read Under the Big Black Sun, the book um, that John Doe just put out. I have it, but I haven't read it yet. I'm really excited to. Oh, my God. You have to read my chapter in it. Everybody needs to. No, but I'll, I'll, t- I'll tell you, like, how that chapter opens. I had I had just turned 16, like, like a week after I got to L.A., and I, I took a bus wearing this antique satin like evening 30s evening gown I took a bus to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium to see Queen and um this was like it was like March of 1975 and um like I was I, I you know I was like in the in the row of seats and this this like really foxy old man in the row in front of me, I say old man because he had silver hair. He turned around and he handed me a joint. And then I realized I was smoking a doobie with Tony Curtis. Oh, my God. <laughs> Only in Hollywood. Like, no, no, completely. And so I was like all like losing it, you know, that I was getting stoned with like, you know, someone that was like a hot slave in Spartacus and like in something like it hot and stuff, you know. That is so fantastic! What an introduction! What a welcome to LA! Yeah, and then the net, and then the thing that kind of got me like off of like you know that, that distracted me from the fact that I was getting high with him was um, I saw these two boys walking down the aisle, and one had like you know was shirtless with black satin pants and a big black satin cape, and the other one was all in white with like a, a bright orange Bowie mullet, which wasn't called a mullet in those days, and an Aladdin St. Bolt across his face. And so I wrote all over this matchbook, and I wrote, like, Saturns and stars and moons and stuff all over it. And I said, Aladdin St. You Cosmic Orgasms, call me. <gasps> and I threw, I threw it at their seat, like, <laughs> right when the lights were going down. And the next day they called, and then it turned out to be um, – George and Paul, who later turned into like Pat Smear and Darby Crash from the Germs. Amazing. And the Foo yeah. Fighters. Yeah. yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> that is so awesome. 
Um, is it true that your first date in LA was with Rodney Bingenheimer? Bingenheimer, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, and yeah. And then um he he totally showed up at my house in like a pink satin like Aussie Clark suit from like Granny Takes a Trip and I you know, I was wearing platforms and I'm not even that tall, but I was towering over his head. And my mother was just like, you could tell she was like, what the fuck? <laughs> she would have been saying, what the actual fuck? If that would have been like common parlance in those days. Yes. <laughs> I did. Um, we have an episode before Lynx came on as co-host and we did male groupies. And among the male groupies was Cameron Crowe and Ronnie Bingenheimer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. They were definitely the most famous male groupies. But they both also, both of them also did so much for um, rock and roll in general. You know, like they weren't just decorative arm candy, neither one of them. I mean, I mean, not that like any groupie really is, but you know what I mean? Like, like they both like were actively contributing to the cause, you know? Absolutely. That's what I'm hoping to do. Like, I do enjoy being decorative arm candy, but I really what? do want to contribute as well to Absolutely. the art. So I'm glad that we have the opportunity to do this. Yeah, you're totally preserving history by doing this. It's awesome. So you also did this. Is it around this time that you started making your zines? Yes, that was it, that was right when I started making my zines. And then as soon as I did that, I, uh, it it started like like in less than a year that I was writing for like real rock and roll papers and stuff too. Um, you know, like I I just I I'll tell you like I don't think that I wrote about this or told Miss Pamela in her book. I can't. I honestly can't remember. So I'm sorry if this is like a repetitive story. But I used to read like. Like, I loved Cream magazine, and, and there was all these, like, you know, hard copy rock and roll magazines there, like Rolling Stone and Circus and all of those, before, like, the later ones, like Spin and stuff. But, but Cream magazine was always amazing, and so was Roxine, but some of the other ones, like, I would just, or, like, in the newspapers, I would just read the reviews that, like, quote, quote, rock critics wrote. And um, I would be like, what was that person thinking? That's not what the record was about. Or, you know, I'd be like, this person just doesn't get that band. Why are they even reviewing it? So I, I thought, like, you know, I could write. I know what, what's going on. I should write stuff. So I had been cutting typing class to get high, you know, <laughs> because I thought typing was boring and stupid, especially the way they taught it was really boring and really stupid. And it was manual typewriters in those days. I mean, it wasn't even like electric. So you can imagine like how boring that class was typing the quick brown fox jumped over the lake or whatever, you know, 500 times. Anyway, so I would cut it to go and get stoned. But um, I sat down and I wrote like a few reviews of albums that had just come out and some sample reviews of shows that I had seen. And I wrote those in, in like about you know, half an hour or an hour. I just wrote them up really fast, but then it took me all night to type them, to do hunt and peck typing. But I made copies of them and I sent them into like some different rock and roll magazines and they all got accepted. And then I got checks back in the mail. And then all of the editors called me up and asked um, if I had more. And I was like, oh yeah. So I figured, okay, now that I've got my foot in the door, the next, the next things that I wrote, I wrote them on lined school notebook paper with like three holes in it in ballpoint <laughs> pen. <laughs> I sent them in. <laughs> Amazing. 
I know. And then they all come back and they're like, do you think you can type this up? And I'm like, oh, uh, my typewriter's in the shop now. <laughs> and then I was like, yes, I better learn how to type. <laughs> oh, man. So how many issues of lobotomy, your zine, did you end up making? I think we probably made, I mean, I'm going to guess like maybe around 20. It might have been a little more or a little less because it, it ran from like, it ran from um, seven, early in 78, like like right after the Sex Pistols first played in 78 to like about 81. Um, but it didn't come out every month. Sometimes it would skip a month or two. And I I found a bunch of them here. I'm actually making a book about lobotomy with Teresa Caricas, who took most of um, the pictures for lobotomy because we had a big art show last year here with um because I found a box full of the original paste ups that I had done all completely in their bags and envelopes from the printers with the receipts in them. I don't even know how I had it together to save them in those days, but I did. So it's like, everything you know with like I mean it's got like Teresa's pictures like glued onto the paper and also like shit that we cut out of like sounds and enemy of like you know for pictures of like you know 999 or or the buzzcocks or something you know like bands that hadn't been here yet that's amazing I was just gonna ask you if we were ever gonna be able to check them out yeah we're um we're gonna we're we're in the middle of putting together like a full book. It's going to be out on punk hostage press. And then Teresa's coming out here in April again, and we're going to work on the book, but we're also, we've done lectures at UCLA and um, other like universities, like on punk rock, which is still kind of crazy to me. This is going to be like the fourth time that I've spoken at UCLA and I've spoken at a bunch of other colleges just about punk rock. And that still just blows my mind, you know? That is pretty punk rock. <laughs> yeah. Um, who are your favorite or most memorable people that you've interviewed? Um, oh, my God. Well, I was just reading – I was just reading a uh, – uh, uh, an interview that I did with Mike Patton. Um, Faith No More was supposed to come to LA to do like a bunch of press and I was going to write about them for Spin and then the LA riots happened. So this was like in 93. And um, the record company, Warner Brothers, they canceled it, you know, because LA was like literally burning. But so, um, I mean, not the record company, like Spin, everything just got canceled. But then the record company was like, well, we'll, we'll send her, you know, we'll pay for her to go um, to a date on their tour. So I wound up going to England because they were playing with Guns N' Roses at Wembley. And um, Faith No More had gotten famous, like, really, really fast, you know, like, like seriously, almost overnight. And most overnight successes take a few years, but this really happened like almost overnight. You know, it, it was, it was crazy. And I thought that they were going to be like big giant assholes. And they thought that I was going to be like a normal press person or journalist. So we were both like really, really suspicious of each other. And, um, you know, within the first like few minutes, like, Mike and I, I don't even know how we started bonding over psychotic stuff like like Spike Jones and like, you know, Mexican, uh, 
not Mexican, Alaskan throat singing and all this weird stuff. And then I wound up taking him out to all these like really sleazy, like insanely sleazy clubs in Soho where there was like, you know, hookers. Like we were sitting at oh, and the first club that we were going to, a guy was getting like thrown out that was completely covered in puke. He was wearing a tuxedo completely covered in puke. And I was like, oh, this place is going to be great. You know all the hot spots. It, yeah. So Mike and I got to be really good friends during that time and then I, I actually got him a part in a movie that I was in with Karen Black called Firecracker and it was a, a movie about a carnival and it was a true story it was a crazy movie but Mike was all like you know scared he's like what makes you think I can act and I was like I know you can because of what you do on stage and then of course he could act and you know the director thought he was amazing and the movie was so amazing and crazy that there's like at least five people that I know of, and I, and I don't know these people, but I mean, I've seen the photos and it's all different people that have tattoos of him in his part, you know, like from that movie or like someone has a whole back piece of like the whole carnival and Mike Patton and like me with three boobs because I was playing a three boob sideshow dancer. <laughs> I was just going to say, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people out there that have tattoos of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know at least one person does, but um, anyway, yeah, so that was one of my favorite interviews because in the, in the story for, um, in the story for spin, I wrote all of that stuff that we were doing, you know, cause it was totally not like a normal interview. Like none of my interviews were ever like a normal interview because I wasn't like a normal press person. You were anything but normal, I would say. <laughs> and that is a compliment. Jeez. Who wants normal? Well, Baby, you're, you're paranormal. I'll tell you a funny story. Um, right around that time, I, um, I was at, I was at South by Southwest with my band Honk If You're Horny, which was an X rated <laughs> it was an X rated country band. It was supposed to be a side project, but like it, it wound up like, you know, people just always wanted it and there was like fifteen people in the band and stuff. So you know, we didn't even like have oh, to audition and do what you normally do to get to South by Southwest. They like flew us there and shit. So I got woken up after our gig, like, you know, which was which was a, a complete riot the night before. But I got woken up really early. And this was way pre-cell phones by the hotel room phone ringing. And it was someone that wanted to know if I would be on a, a panel of the ethics in, in rock writing, um, you know, panel, because someone was really sick and they couldn't make it. So I was like, when does it start? And they're like, in half an hour. And I was still like high on mushrooms. Like I was looking at the carpet and it was like moving. <laughs> so, but I was like, uh, I, are you sure you need another person? They're like, yeah, we really want to have another woman. So I said, okay. So I got it together. And, you know, like I, that was back in the days when I could clean up pretty good and in, in not that long of a time. It wasn't like now, hashtag old lady. <laughs> But um, but so so I made my way down there, and then they had to have like a pre-panel powwow, and it was all these like really famous rock writers. I'm not going to say who they are, but they're like really really well known, you know, mm -hmm. like people that were very very big and very like sort of straight laced and stuff. And one of them was a woman, and she's written books and stuff. And um, they were like, okay, let's all just like you know get a few facts straight so we're unified as a panel. And you know, does everyone agree with this? Yes. Does everyone agree with that? Yes. Does everyone agree with this? Yes. And then 
So the woman said, so let's just be straight. Nobody's ever slept with anyone they've interviewed, right? (laughs) No, no, no. And and they get to me and I was like, oh, yeah, I do it all the time. And they're like, what? (laughs) They were like, like, they were just flabbergasted. And then one of them was like, but but you can't you can't write an objective story. How can you do that? And I said, I don't want to write an objective story. I don't want to write about someone I'm not interested in. If I think someone's really talented, I want to write about them. And if they're really cute and talented and we're talking and there's an attraction, of course, I'm going to go with it. You know, I'm not like I'm not trying to be an unbiased journalist. Like, I don't want to waste my time on something I don't like. And Amen. Then they, were all, they were just horrified. Like, why would I want to write about Michael Bolton? I'm sure someone likes him, but I'm not going to write disparaging crap about him because I'm sure he's really talented. He's just not to my taste or someone like that. You know what I mean? But like, why would I not sleep with someone? Do you know how many cuties I've had on this podcast? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so speaking of one of those uh, sexy musicians that you interviewed um tell us about Iggy Pop yeah tell us about Iggy Pop (laughs) oh my god um well I like we first met when I was 15 that also happened that happened really quickly after that Queen concert because George and Paul aka Pat and Darby brought me um to his house they were like hey do you want to go and visit Iggy and I was like sure (laughs) we were like wandering around on Hollywood Boulevard and so we got to this big huge amazing like 1930s building and I thought it was like the Beverly Hillbillies you know because I wasn't out you know I'd only been here like about a week and a half or two weeks at tops you know and so I thought because he was a rock star I thought that was his house and then when we went into this little like tiny basement apartment (laughs) I was like kind of flabbergasted you know I was like a little bit shocking But so, um, you know, nothing happened there. And I was so nervous. I just couldn't believe that I was meeting someone that, you know, whose music I listened to nonstop. You know, it was it was just kind of and he looked really, really awesome. You know, in in for Miss Pamela's book, Mm -hmm. I, I said, I think like he was acting like, you know, he was kind of acting like a like a Las Vegas, um, you know, like like either a talk show host or like a, an MC in Las Vegas, you know, he was all, oh, hey, hey, nice to meet you. But like, like then, you know, in hindsight, I realized he was probably like, you know, speeding his brains out. But um, but he looked really great, you know, and, and I mean, this was the person that had done Search and Destroy. But then I kept bumping into him. I um, saw him again at Patti Smith at the Roxy, you know, which is like. This was like right when horses had just come out and the Roxy was sold out for a couple of nights. Um, yeah. And then I saw I saw him like a bunch of times and just like the first time that I ever wound up going home with him was after, after it was Devo at the Starwood. And I'm not remembering the date of that, but the Starwood was this really fabulous, huge, like, it was like the rock and roll mecca club of West Hollywood, you know. It's no longer there, but it was it was owned by Eddie Nash, you know, that had he was like this awesome gangster that owned like half of Hollywood and you know, he had a hand in like the Wonderland murders from that movie and yeah. all that. Yeah. Um, I mean the stories about Eddie Nash 
were legendary and I'm sure most of them were true. But so the Starwood was just amazing, you know, and somehow I don't even know how this happened. Like, I mean, maybe, maybe cause I was a, a young teenage girl, but like me and a bunch of other people just always got in free everywhere. Like, I, I don't even know how it started, you know, like, I don't even know if that kind of stuff still goes on or if that was just kind of the seventies, but so I was there and I was backstage. I used to park my school books there because I would lie to my mom and tell her I was like going to the library. <laughs> um, and then I would like either hitchhike or take the bus up to Hollywood. So I'd, I'd park my school books at the bar and then go up into the VIP section. <laughs> oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> awesome. And, uh, another thing that would never happen in this day and age. No. Um, and the, the night before there had been a giant party um at the Slash Magazine loft for Devo. And um, then there was an after party at the Germs house. And I fell over like this little balcony on the on a, a stair landing because it was wet and it was like painted slick, you know, and because everyone that was there was, including me, was really drunk. But it was like all slippery. And so I'd had to get stitches in my chin and I had a black eye and, you know, oh, my man. wrist was broken and stuff, but I was still out at a concert. <laughs> Holy moly. I know, it was insanity. But so that's what I looked like um, at that concert the next day. I had like, you know, I was all banged up and bruised up and stuff. And um, then like the people from Slash, they're like, oh my God, there's Iggy, there's Iggy. Don't you know him? Like, go and ask him for an interview. And I was like, you know, I was trying to resist. And finally I just said, oh, okay, you know. So I went up to him and, and I was like, hi, um, you know, the people from Slash want to know if they can do an interview. And he's like, what? How come you don't say hi like a normal human being? How are you? What happened to you? You know? <laughs> and so I just started talking to him. And um, then, like, like he, you know, there was a, he was with a bunch of people, so he had to go. And then I went back to the people I was with. I was with um, not just the people from Slash, but this guy like Pat Garrett from the Randoms. He ran Danger House Records, you know, the the L.A. record label of punk rock. Anyway, um, we were getting ready to leave, and like Pat was like, "Oh my God, you were just with Iggy. You were with Iggy," and I was like, "Yeah, I know. I I already know him and stuff." And so then um, we were leaving, and we were just about to get to Pat's car and. Iggy had this big white boat Cadillac convertible, like a 60s Cadillac convertible. And he was in it with, like, Tony Basil and these beautiful models. And, um, you know, it was just, like, <laughs> everyone in it was, like, blonde or gorgeous, you know. And they just pulled up and they're like, hey, we're going to Barney's Beanery. You should come with. So we just followed them in the car. And then that that, that was, like, a straight shot down Santa Monica Boulevard from where the Starwood was and Barney's Beanery in those days was like a big huge rock and roll hangout you know because it, it had a bar and it stayed open late and stuff so um there was this liquor store right across the street from it and I told Pat to go in to Barney's Beanery and I told him I was gonna go and get smokes and he'd be right back which was true but as I was going in, Iggy was coming out, and then he looks at me, and he's like, I hate the people I'm with. Come with me to the whiskey, and let's go and see the dictators. And I was like, what? Yes. And he, like, grabbed my arm and, like, shoved me in his car. Amazing. Yeah, so we, so we went up there, and then we couldn't get in, even though he was him, because it was totally over capacity. Aww. So then he asked if I wanted to go to his house, and I said yes, and I thought it was in the Hollywood Hills. I didn't realize it was in Malibu. 
you know, which I mean, I still probably would have gone. But like after a while, I was like, where are we going? <laughs> he was kidnapping you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kidnapped by Iggy Pop. I know. It's going to be, be the title of the episode. <laughs> Just yeah. kidding. And then it, it was like, it got totally, it was freezing as we were driving through like the Pacific Palisades, you know. So, and he was going to try to put the, the roof up and he got out and he couldn't get it to go up. He was trying for ages. And then he turned to me and he's like, <laughs> I feel like Richie on Happy Days. <laughs> I know it's hilarious. I couldn't even then. I couldn't believe he said that, you know. But um, so then we we went back to his house and it was awesome. And I wound up staying there most of the summer. And um, I saw him like a bunch after that. Every so often, I'd see him. And we had another thing where he asked for me to interview him. I can't remember. I think this was for a request, but it might have been for spin. This was years later. Um, his the magazine had me do it because they said that his publicist told them he'd known me since I was a little tyke, but I misheard it on the phone and I said he's known me since I was a little dyke. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so we were in the middle of doing um, an interview and then he wanted me to like, he wanted me to, to, to come to this party for Metallica with him that night. And I didn't, I, I said no, because I had to be at work. And he's like, well, ditch work. And I was like, but I love my job. And he's like, what do you do? <laughs> and he told him I was a belly dancer. And he immediately told me he loved like Um Kaltum, which is like, you know, she is like the Elvis of the Arabic world, you know, mm-hmm. like, and, it, and she's hugely famous, you know, and she got even more famous after she was dead. But I couldn't believe he knew who Um Kaltum was. I mean, that was like shocking to me. Um, and so I told him he should come and see, see me. And I was kind of just kidding. And then he showed up and he almost didn't get into the club because the Arab clubs in L.A. in those days. And um, everyone, you know, all the waiters were in tuxedos and there was like real linen on the tables and there was like a full band. And, you know, very they were fancy. Very, yeah, really fancy and formal. And there was a dress coat and he was wearing like torn up jeans and a leather <laughs> jacket. And one of the other belly dancers saw him. And she went up to the bandage and she's like, no, you have to let that guy in. And and um, he was like, why? And he's like, you know, George Wasouf, who who you got, I'm sure you guys don't know him, but he was like a really ridiculously famous Lebanese singer. They're like, this is like the George Wasouf of America. And they were like, nice. <laughs> you know, so then one of the waiters went and got a, um, went across the street and got one of those cardboard disposable cameras because this was, you know, this was way 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 before cell phones but as soon as he found out there was someone famous you know he he went out and got to the gas station and got a disposable camera from the convenience store but so so um I was on stage with a sword on my head I was like doing a split on the floor and I saw this like person with white hair walk in and then I realized it was him you know and not like some girl and I couldn't believe he had come. And then when I was done with the sword act, I was going to the dressing room and this other girl came running into the dressing room going, Pleasant, what the fuck is Iggy Pop in here? I know this is your fault. <laughs> That's so fantastic that he came to see you. I know. It was crazy. It was pretty crazy. And um, and then 
this is the best part. Later, I was like after the show, and then I was sitting with him. And one of the rules at like almost any Arab club, especially in those days, was you could not like you couldn't interact with the patrons. You know what I mean? Because there's a very very thin line in that culture between like you know, belly dance and prostitution. And I mean, just traditionally, you know? And mm -hmm. so you just had to like, everyone wants belly dancers, but if you were like, act, you know, sitting with the patrons or talking to them, that could be very trashy. And, you know, these clubs were like very, you know, very family oriented and full of decorum and stuff like that. So, you know, but like, the staff at that point already knew he was famous, so they were letting me and other dancers sit with him. <laughs> and, um, and also at that point, my drummer, Larry Mullen, was already playing with him, my drummer from my band, The Ringling Sisters, you know, so that was, I, you know, that was a, a different thing too. Anyhow, we were all sitting with him, but then I got up to go to the ladies' room in this, like, Lebanese insurance salesman that have been after me for months. He grabs my hand as I walk by and he goes, Farhana, I have to be a rock and roll man for you to sit with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I just, I, I basically, yes. <laughs> oh my God. I know. <laughs> like, Apparently the word went around the club like wildfire that there was like a famous rock star. <laughs> oh, that's oh. incredible. <laughs> that poor guy. He must have like been desperately trying to decide which instrument to pick up. And you I know, gotta impress her, I gotta impress her. And we've all tried to date the businessmen. You know, like I gave it an honest shot, <laughs> yeah. but it's no dice. It doesn't work. It's, no. it's the rock and roll men that we like. I know, it's so crazy. Like, I was like, I mean, I never dated any of the Arabic musicians because, it, you know, it's like, it's just, a, it's a different culture. And plus I was going to be working with them. Like, I didn't, like... Like in my bands, we were we would have a law that we couldn't sleep with the roadies, even though we broke that law all the time. But we were the bosses of that, you know what I mean? But I just didn't want to like sleep with any of the Arabic musicians. But then once in a while, there'd be one that was so cute. I think, well, maybe maybe I just should break my rule. But then I would come home and I'd look around my house and I'd see all these like pictures of like you know vintage like devils and horseshoes and stuff and like martini glasses and weird shit from the 50s and and just look around the house and go like what could we possibly have in common like honestly <laughs> i don't i don't think this would work on any level you know your house sounds amazing by the way <laughs> <laughs> um so i was curious uh do you remember how the term groupie was looked on in the la punk scene like was was there any negativity attached to it or um i honestly I don't remember on the punk scene. I mean, because a lot of us, a lot of the girls were groupies. I mean, Belinda was a groupie. Lorna Doom, mm -hmm. you know, from the Germ, she was a groupie. A lot, a lot of the girls were groupies. Like there was these other girls that, like you or the listeners, wouldn't really know who they were, but they were, um, they were groupies. You know what I mean? That had zines, and then there was a, a group called Backstage Pass that had Joanna Spock. Dean in it and a girl named Jenny Body. Her name was Jenny Shore. 
and um, Holly Vincent and some other people, they were all groupies. And there was so many women in the punk scene. I don't think groupie was derogatory then at all. And But there was some people that were like sort of feministy. And, and this wasn't in the punk scene, but this was at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I was raised as a feminist, but like it was what would now be called like a, I was what would now be called like a sex positive feminist. I mean, like my mom. Yeah. I had to shoplift my first bra because when I was like 13 with no boobs and I wanted a bra because everyone else in sixth grade had one, she was like, that's bondage clothing. I mean, you can't tell that to a little teenager. You know what I mean? So I shoplifted it. But there was, a, there was people that were very like feminist in those days that were horrified about groupies and stuff like that. But anyone that was a groupie or was sort of groupie adjacent or went out all the time, no one had a problem with it. Of the girls or the boys, you know? Yeah, so it's really interesting how we went from having, you know, the groupies on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine to people thinking that, well, they're not, they they don't even really, like, exist anymore, and if they do, then they're this, and it's negative. Um, Yeah, it's, it's really taken quite a transition, but it's so nice to kind of stand up right now and be like, hey, guess what? We're still here. And you know what I want to see? You know what would be fantastic? It would be so awesome to see, like, Pleasant and Miss Mercy and Miss Pamela all on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> that would be fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, why doesn't, yeah, why doesn't Baron Woolman shoot it? I don't know. Like, why don't we get, let's, let's, <laughs> let's do this. Like, let's get on some magazine covers and say, we're here. <laughs> yeah. And it's a positive thing. Yeah. It, like, it is women doing what they want. Like, there's nothing more feminist than that. I don't understand how anyone I could take it negative. All, I mean, we could have like a whole giant discussion on like, you know, I mean, all of all of this stuff like now is is somewhat getting discussed, not necessarily in terms of groupies, but I mean, there's all like people are now like, you know, like really not into like slut shaming or body shaming or, you know, gender shaming or any of that kind of stuff, you know, but like in those in those days when this when this was going on a lot a lot of people took heat for it because it wasn't considered the societal norm you know and there's still a lot of people that don't think it is and there's still a lot of people that under the guise of like feminism or other things are their their values and mores are really conservative you know mm-hmm. and i mean i just you know, like I've I've always not had a conservative lifestyle, and I'm not interested in it. Although sometimes, you know, the way other people have fantasies when they're having their midlife crisis, they have like fantasies about doing crazy stuff. Once in a while, I'll think, what if I was married to like an accountant and I lived in Des Moines? And I be, I mean, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not kidding. Totally. I, when yeah. I was when I was like 19 years old, I had a boyfriend who gave me a promise ring and then, you know, like wanted to marry me. And I just said, no, I got to go and explore and bless him. You know, like we're still friends to this day. But sometimes I think what would have my life have been like if I would have said yes. And speaking of, you know, non-conservative and and you had a thing with Billy Idol. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't ya? That was crazy. That was that was very I mean that whole that whole time period was crazy. Yeah. 
because I, I was I was also seeing someone else at the same time whose name was also Billy, and I was seeing that person while cheating on my husband. <laughs> oh, damn. Well, Billy also had a girl, Perry Lister. Oh, yeah, she was awesome. I yeah. mean, she was gorgeous. I know. We all went to Disneyland together, and we all took acid together. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, Perry Lister is, like, so unique looking. She really yeah. is. So beautiful. You should have seen her in those days. Somewhere in my house, I've got Polaroids of us from Disneyland. She was so beautiful. God, damn. Uh, And such a good answer. You put, you raised money for your zines by putting shows on at the Whiskey? Yes. And Billy Idol is one of the people who participated, correct? Yeah, he was, he was the guest of honor at one of the shows. And, um, those shows were wild. I mean, I the, this woman named Michelle Myers that you guys might know about. Yes, from, yeah. yeah, she was she was incredible. She was she was the main booker at the whiskey, and she knew all the gossip of everywhere. And um, she actually, her and Rodney like were the ones that sort of helped me to meet Billy Idol because like Chris, he had just gotten signed to Chrysalis. And, uh, um, like Rodney called me up and told me that he was going to be doing an interview with, with Billy, um, like that next Sunday when his show was. And then he said, you know, come down to the studio because after we're done, you can talk to him on the phone because it's going to be on the record company's dime. So I said, okay. So I went down there and I waited and I talked to him. And the first thing I was like, hey, this is pleasant. He's like, oh, I just got your package. And that was like how we sort of met. And we were talking on the phone. And then he came into town. And this was that infamous story like of when um, I set that girl's hair on fire. (laughs) At a party. (laughs) She was so obnoxious. I mean, like, I, I, I do feel twinges of guilt. I would never do anything like that now, but I was a, a crazy drunken teenager then. But, I mean, um, there, was a, there was a band called The Screamers, and it was Tomato, the lead singer's birthday, and it was this big, giant, crazy picnic in Waddles Park. And uh, so this girl was there, and she was trying to look like all mod 60s. She had long blonde hair. And... um she had been like trailing us like all the night before, you know, I was with Teresa Caricas, who I had mentioned before because I didn't have a car. Teresa did. And Teresa and I were with Billy and we were going to get vodka. And this girl like shows up in her car and she's like, we're in the store, like going to get, get booze. And she looks at me and she's like in her fake English accent. Oh, peasant. Why don't you go and, why don't you go and get some orange juice and me and Billy will pick out the vodka. And I was like, I drink it straight. <laughs> I think to get rid of me. So I said, okay, I'll be right back. And then I let the air out of her tires. Oh. <laughs> and she still like managed to get it fixed. And she was like just tailing us shamelessly. <laughs> so the next day when I saw her at this picnic, I'd already had a few drinks, you know, and it was probably like two in the afternoon or three or something. But I just set her hair on fire. <laughs> Did you ever see her after that? I saw her a few times. My nickname for her was Pig Woman, but she never fucked around with me after that. Yeah, I don't think so. (laughs) Okay, so when I was reading old, like, punk rock books and stuff, I would always come across Disgraceland, and I thought it was, like, the coolest punk club ever, and then I discovered (laughs) it wasn't a club at all. 
Yeah, it was a house. I know, but there's there's like an MTV there's a some an MTV um, special floating around somewhere. It's probably on YouTube and stuff called Punks and Posers, and it had all clubs except for our house was in it. And seriously, Disgraceland was it was and still is on the maps to the stars' homes. Amazing, but, yeah. And that um, was your house. You lived yeah, there yeah. with some pretty fantastic roommates. Yeah, my roommates were the first roommate that I got it with was Kid Congo, who wound up joining the Cramps, and he was in the Gun Club, and he played with Nick Cave, and he's got the Pink Monkey Birds now. And then um, another roommate that got really famous while we were living there was Belinda from the Go Go's, and um, when she got famous, it was like it's a hard day's night because <laughs> Disgraceland was between two schools, oh, like no. literally between two schools. <laughs> so already recess was hell when we were hungover. <laughs> but soon as like there was the, these um, these Mexican young teenager sisters that used to live upstairs from us, and they would just play Donna Summer forty fives <laughs> nonstop, like twenty four seven. And one day it switched to our lips are sealed. Aww. And this was right, right before it went to number one. And we we had our own indication. And Belinda was like laying on the bed crying with a pillow over her head going, make it stop. Make it stop. <laughs> and, we, and me and my other roommate, Anne, we were like, you should just go up there in a towel with cold cream all over your face and tell him to turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, imagine the shock of opening your door and seeing Belinda like that. I know, but there was like, there was like kids with their hands through the mailbox at all hours and like at the windows and shit, so she had to move. Well, at least uh, it was worth it for her. Oh yeah. I got to see the Go-Go's last year, actually, it was the day of her birthday, so it was like a big celebration and... Oh, awesome. Yeah, everyone sung happy birthday to her. They're still, like, so great live. Oh, I know. They're amazing. I know. And me and her are still friends. I can't even remember. Oh, I, what did she? She just wrote something to me on Twitter the other day. I don't even remember what it was. But um, we've bought, like, I don't know. I don't know what people think of, like, my Twitter feed. I'm not trying to change the subject. But, like, there's, there'll be, they'll be, like, weird I'll put up like a weird story or a photo or something from the olden days. And then the people that were in the photo with me, like answer back to it. So there's, there's all these people now on Twitter that like, I don't, I'm not even entirely sure who they are that are like, <laughs> like fans of those different bands that are now like talking to me all the time. It's kind of strange, but it's fun. Links like in, sorry. Continue. Huh? Oh, I was going to say Lynx and I are just getting uh, into Twitter now, and it really is incredible how you can instantly connect with people like this today, whereas, you know, we were talking about the Backstreet Boys when I was young, and I remember lying in bed thinking, like, I wonder what they're up to right now. I wonder what they're doing, and I'm sure people thought the same thing. I wonder what George Harrison is doing right now. Speaking of which, it's happy birthday, George Harrison. It's his birthday today, February 25th. Um, but you know, nowadays, yeah, like if you really like somebody and you wonder, I wonder what they're doing right now, you just go check it on Twitter. <laughs> no, it's crazy. I know. Like, do you know that, um, 
I don't know if you saw, like, I, there was a recent blog post of mine that I put up called The Opposite of Bowie. I don't know if you saw that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, it was it was this crazy story, but I, I put it on Twitter, and the person that produced the record was <laughs> Station to Station, where which was why I was wait, cutting school to wait in the parking lot for Bowie, like, wrote me a private message on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, none of us could have ever imagined that kind of thing happening in those days, you know, that, like, that you'd be talking to... Well, I don't know, because that... And that happened to me. I would meet the people in real life that I saw only in pictures all the time. But, I mean, I guess it was because I lived in Hollywood. But, you know, but, I mean, still, it's just crazy when people are, like, after the fact, so active on Twitter and on any social media. It's really amazing and really fun, you know? Yeah. Um, in my teenage years, like, social media was just beginning, like, uh, MySpace and things like that. And I used to write bands all the time that I knew were coming to Toronto to like try to hook up with them. And it worked like all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what, you know, that's like how I used to do it too, except it wasn't social media. We would just go to the hotel and, and call the room and because it wasn't like how you'd think it would be in those days. Like it, there wasn't like guards or record company people or anything. You'd just say, can I have this room? Or like, let me, let me, let me talk to the cramps room or something. And they would just like, put it through it was crazy yeah it's amazing yeah. yeah that would never happen now no can you but it doesn't happen on the internet though so that's fine yeah yeah and there's still fun. ways there's still ways yeah can you tell us about your transition from punk rock queen to belly dancer um sure this was I'd always, always, always been interested in belly dancing. And I know that sounds really crazy, but I, ever since I was like four, I had a picture of a belly dancer that I used to keep in the shoebox when I was little because my father, aside from writing about music, wrote for National Geographic. And this was a picture that had been in one of the magazines that he had a story in. Anyway, um, I didn't, I just, um, I, I met a belly dancer at a rock and roll club and I started semi-stalking her <laughs> and forcing her to like, you know, show me how to do stuff at like after parties because we like the same bands, you know. And then very quickly after that, um, my husband was, a, he was a, he was a sound man. He worked for like Hole and The Cramps and DOA and all these, you know, bands and, um, our house got broken into when he was on the road and I was here. So I was scared to stay alone. So I, this Swiss roadie that had been with a band that I knew um, was in L.A. And then he wanted to stay longer. So I told him to come and stay at my house because I didn't want to be in my house alone. I wanted to have a guy there, you know. Mm-hmm. And he was friends with my husband. So he heard me talking on the phone because someone had just given me a ticket to Greece in those days, you know, before nine 11, this was, and this was well before it, you could, you could give or sell airplane tickets anywhere, you know? So someone had literally given me a ticket to Greece because they weren't going to be able to use it. And, um, I added, I had just added on Cairo and I was talking on the landline phone to someone you know, telling them I was going to Cairo because I wanted to study belly dancing because I had just been like, you know, getting lessons from this chick that I'd met because we liked all the same bands. And so then when I hung up, 
um, this roadie said to me, he's like, hey, my, my brother just got stationed in Cairo because he works for Swiss Air. You know, I'm going to tell him to call you. What's your hotel information? And I gave it to him and stuff. And so when I got there, he immediately got me. And I thought we were just going to go out for coffee, and we were, you know. But then when he saw the hotel I was staying at, he was like, you can't stay here. And, you know, like I stayed there like that night. But he turned out to be this awesome, like, fun and crazy queen that liked show tunes. And I I was raised with show tunes, and I was all, you know, and all my crazy ass, like, drag queen babysitters I was telling him about. <laughs> so, so I wound up, like, staying at his house for, like, eight weeks. And he was a workaholic, so I had his, like, Egyptian driver. And, you know, I just said belly dance, belly dance, belly dance, or, you know, in the words in Arabic. So that was that was how um, I started learning you know, I saw a bunch of dancers. I got a couple of costumes, you know, really cheap costumes there and um, took a bunch of classes. And when I came back, I was still taking classes, but I just started working and it never stopped, you know. That's so a, that's incredible. I yeah, it was I um so our podcast now is in its episode. This is probably going to be around episode 22. And in the first, second, maybe third episodes of the podcast, I was just like, I want to belly dance. I want to be I've all of a sudden started talking about belly dancing. And then I was in Montreal for New Year's and I was in this very random store with a lot of strange things. We were there to buy snow pants so we could go downhill um, sliding <laughs> And there were these beautiful belly dancing outfits. And I almost bought one right then and there. But I went, why am I so attracted to this? And I don't know. There's just something about it that I'm, I was just been feeling pulled towards. And I think that these are kind of signs to maybe go in that direction. And when I've got some time to learn something new. So, and just having you here, I don't know if I, I don't want to call it a coincidence, but I think that there was something in me that. Yeah. And you, th you teach as well, right? Yes, I teach. And then where are you guys in Halifax? No, Toronto. Oh, you're in Toronto. I used to live in Halifax. I'm trying to think. I know some girls in Toronto. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll figure out who's good teachers for you and I'll send it. I'll send you their names. But yeah, I, I, don't, I kind of don't think that there's that much of a, I mean, I think it's a coincidence that you want to do it and I do it, but I connect all of this kind of stuff in my head to, it's like, I don't know. I mean, it connects to crazy stuff like the stones in their Moroccan period to like belly dancing and like, you know, temple prostitutes in Northern India. I mean, I, all of this stuff makes sense to me, you know, like it just, it just seems like it's like a DNA pattern. I definitely think I was a prostitute, or I guess, you know, <laughs> sorry, sex worker in the past life. I honestly believe that. Oh, I'm sure you were. I, I'm sure I got burned at the stake in a past life. <laughs> okay, I'm happy where this is going because I am right there with you. I do believe that as well for me. And I really think that we're all connected. A lot of us women that we're talking about, we're all really connected in this very magical kind of way. So I've been watching, so we've been recording now and I've been, you know, watching our levels and our recording and things like this because I know that you experience and have experienced EPK, electropsychokinesis, yeah. where, yeah. Um, you know, all of a sudden maybe the computer would stop working or the light would go off 
or any sort of electrical current stuff. Well, when I was reading your book, I went, oh my goodness, that's what it is. My mother and I, my mother and I experience it. Oh, wow. Yeah. So as I sent, I sent my mom, um, a picture of the page where you explain it. And I said, mom, this is it. And she went, you're kidding. That's absolutely what it is. So things like when my mom and I, this very computer that I'm recording on, um, my mom and I were in our kitchen once just talking together and a shot of light came in from the window right into the middle of the computer. Things like yeah. that. No, I know. I know. Shit like that happens all the time, like constantly, all, all the time. We get stuck in storms together, a lot of lightning stuff. And then as I was texting my mom this, she's like, it's lightning out right now. It was early in the morning and she said, it's lightning out right now. As I sent her the message about all of the um, EPK stuff. So has this been a thing from childhood for you? Yes, from childhood. And I started um, I started doing healing with it a few years ago. And when I do it, it feels like magnets. And I can, like, I can do distance healing. I've, I've, I cured, like, someone's um, – someone had, like, um, vertigo for four months in Chicago. This is someone that I only know from the Internet. And so I made him call me. And he called me, and I, and I did it to him, and he, he he just thought I was being all crazy and, and woo-woo. And then the next day, he called me screaming that it was completely gone. So I do I do healing now all the time in real life and distance with it. And when I started doing that, it stopped, um, it stopped like, exploding so much stuff. But I, I have one crazy story that when I first started doing it, my neighbor came over. And um, she was having a horrible neck ache. And she's like, I heard that you're doing healing. And this, this was like two in the morning. So she's like, can you can you heal my neck? So I said, sure. And I made her lay on my lumpy old couch because I didn't have a massage table or anything. And so I was pulling this stuff out of her. And I could feel it. I was backing up and backing up. And I was about 10 feet away, like almost at the wall of my living room. And I thought, what am I supposed to do with this? Because I could feel it literally coming out of her and I could see it in my head. It looked like all this weird, like purple sludge. And then I thought, oh, yeah, you're just supposed to dispose of the energy. But I wasn't grounded or anything like that. You know, I didn't know anything about that. So I just sort of randomly threw it at my kitchen. And then all of a sudden, all the lights started flashing on and off. I have these big shop lights and it was making a sound going like, "Ah, ah, ah." I mean, it sounded like like an emergency at like a nuclear power plant or something. And so she sat up and she was like, what the fuck? And I ran into the kitchen and I was looking at it and the lights were flashing on and off in rhythm. And, and I started getting like really stressed out with the electrical stuff like I used to. And I just put my hands up and I screamed, stop. And it stopped. And I heard her go (gasps) behind me. And then all of a sudden there was like about a foot and a half, layer of smoke around the ceiling and it was all uh, covering the whole ceiling and it was moving around and all I could say was it was smoke but it looked like a bunch of individual like Nike swooshes or like check marks made out of smoke and I didn't want to tell her like what I was seeing in case she wasn't seeing it so I was like hey are you seeing this she's like oh you mean all the smoke on the ceiling yeah I'm seeing it (laughs) Oh my God, that's insane. I know. So were you saying that if you channel then your healing and like you're ele- so if you're sending it um, to distance or you're doing it in person and if you're sending that out, then it's less likely that the occurrences 
happen around you, like lights going off or things breaking down? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's been very, 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 since I started doing healing and I do it a lot, like to people and animals now that the explosions and the car batteries dying and the having to get the new cell phones and the computers freezing has gone down so much. Like it'll only happen now once in a while if I'm like really stressed out and I'm not like sort of conscious, like, like I was getting really frustrated talking to a person at a bank because of an online banking glitch thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then, I walked into, and then I saw what time it was, and I had to walk into the bathroom because I, you know, to get ready. So I thought, since this person was on speakerphone, I might as well start putting on my makeup for my show. So as soon as I walked into the bathroom, I flicked on the light, but because I was so pissed off because this person was such an idiot, the light just shattered. (laughs) That's amazing, though, like, you've learned to channel the energy into something positive. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so weird. I taught it to myself how to do it and then um I was practicing it on my cats I know this sounds really insane but like I'd have my hand about like a foot above the cat and I would see their hair go up like like an electrical static charge and then they would just start purring you know (laughs) I love all the photos of your kitties that you post (laughs) (laughs) oh my god ghost ghost is the most baby cat Speaking of channeling energy, have you noticed online recently that there's this thing going on where the witches and like Lana Del Rey are putting out um, numbers and dates for other witches to um, channel energy towards uh, Trump? Yeah, yeah. It's not just Lana Del. I mean, yeah, it started with witches, not Lana Del Rey, but yes. No, I just yeah, I just had seen she jumped on as well. Last night was was one at midnight last night. Did you participate? Did yeah, of course. So this is a thing. It's, it's almost like people are really coming out of the closet with this too. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a whole bunch of like witchy stuff that's been coming out of the closet. I mean, not just because of Trump. All of that's been like getting like, like for the past couple of years, it's been like building and building. And I mean... I've noticed that, that a lot of people are like, they're just coming out of like, we call it coming out of the broom closet. <gasps> but also, of course. Yeah. But also normal people. And I'm saying that in big quotes, but I mean, people that never gave credence to any of that stuff are like now really getting interested in it. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that the veil's really thinning now. And, and I really think it is. I think it has been for ages. There's, there's so much crazy stuff happening. I am so right there with you. And that's another thing, too, that we're making these connections with these women is they were so powerful. They were so magical. They were otherworldly. And I know um, you and I have the connection, to with uh, the tarot. I, I love reading the tarot. I love pulling cards. I had a friend over last night who was pulling angel cards for him, and he was kind of being blown away by it. And how long have you been doing the, the tarot? Since I I saved up my babysitting money and got my first deck when I was like, I was either at the end of being 12 or the beginning of being 13. So do you think that, I just want to be mindful of of your time, so we'll, um, we'll wrap it up shortly. But do you think that 
coming into 2017, yeah, we didn't kind of get off on the greatest start with this whole, you know, the whole T word thing. But a lot of the women that I'm talking to were all feeling kind of powerful and optimistic. And yeah, oh, I was counting the minutes until this year because even with the T word and stuff, this they this year is so much better than last year. Last year was just a horrible year for so many people and there was so much sorrow and bad stuff happening but this year is like it's just already an amazing year there's some weird stuff going on in the world but Mm -hmm. uh, but it's just a better year like energetically Mm -hmm. you know that's it that's what we're feeling that's what everybody's feeling it's feeling better energetically yeah Great. Well, there's so much more that we could go on about and that we could ask you about. We have more questions. Um, so we'd love to have you on uh, again. I would love to do that. I would love to hear your story about Tura Satana and, and about all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of witchy, powerful women. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So you have a gig tonight. Yes, I'm belly dancing tonight. That's amazing. So anyone who is interested in checking out your work, where can they find you? Um, They can find me on my website, um, which is pleasantgaman.com, P-L-E-A-S-A-N-T-G-E-H-M-A-N.com. You can find me on Instagram, um, at Princess of Hollywood. You can find me as Pleasant Gaiman or Princess Farhana on Facebook and same on Twitter. I have accounts for both of them. And I also have a witchy account called the Divination Nation. Awesome. And also Princess Farhana has a website too. And they're all they're all kind of linked up to each other. But I keep them a little bit separated. Like some are a little more, you know, like one's more belly dancey, one's burlesque and rock and roll and witchy shit and you know what I mean yeah and if anyone's interested in seeing a little dance of yours um I I've checked you out on YouTube and there's some great uh pieces up oh yeah thank you yeah there's some there's some dances up there and that's why this podcast is muses and stuff because we want to talk about rock and roll and all that witchy shit. So this, <laughs> this has just been a real dream come true. And we'll link up all of your stuff in our show notes and uh, in our description. And it was an absolute honor speaking with you today. And I'm so happy to have met your 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 acquaintance, your royal acquaintance. My friend <laughs> said, "Are are you podcasting with the princess tonight?" And I said, yes, yes I we am. Are. <laughs> thank Here's you so much. Here's half of my dress. No. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, girls. Thank you. And you can check us out, um, Muses and Stuff Podcast, on Instagram by that name. Same thing on Facebook and at our website, musesandstuff.ptbopodcasters.ca. And now our, our Twitter, which is yes. at Shanti and Links. Yeah, I'm going to find you on Twitter right now. I was actually looking for you right before. Perfect. We're building it up. Yeah. (laughs) We're building it, baby, with that great energy, that great 2017 energy. All right. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Right back at you. And to all of our listeners. We'll see you next week. Okay, bye.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.